0: This is a crowd podcast.
1: Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son
0: after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. Let's dive in. So you know how my doorbell just went? Yeah. Is that your... Collagen. Big collagen. Look collagen. how much collagen you've got. <laughs> but is it the is it the um the fluidy stuff or is it the the eatable stuff or is it tablets or is it stuff to put on your skin? I think it's tablets, but is um it?
1: it's so well wrapped that it will take me a while to um crack Get into it. it. I might have to um might because I've stopped using
0: them. the sachets, I just didn't like the taste of them, but I'm still putting the kind of like, a, it's like a serum on my face. And I reckon it is making a difference. I, I didn't recognise you when you first joined oh. me today. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right, what have I got? Oh,
0: I've got all sorts. Hang
1: on. Have you? I've got powder.
0: Okay, so can you put that in a smoothie or something? Joskins,
1: natural collagen factories begin to wind down and lose the ability to make and store collagen Collagen depletion can lead to common signs of aging. I know. With no taste, strong smell or flavour, it completely dissolves in water, smoothies, shakes or soups,
0: making yeah, it easy and nice.
1: convenient to boost your daily collagen. Right. So I'm going to be drinking it. I'm going to be <laughs>
0: smothering it all over. Oh, your they're body. gummies. Oh, nice collagen. Oh yeah, gummies. I think I saw those when I was looking at it. I Two like to a five. Gummy. I like a gummy. Two to five a day. That's not going to last very long. Up, up, up. How many calories have they got in that gummy, though? That's oh, good. Really? Thing. Do we have to think about that? Yeah, given the fact I've lost ten pounds. Yeah, but what's more important? I am so looking what's like What's more I important? Is. Having flawless
1: skin or a um, few calories in a gummy? I mm. don't know if it's got the calorie count. It's uh, the sweetener. I mean, how much can be in a gummy? It's got collagen gummies with marine collagen, vitamin C, biotin, selenium, sugar, and sweeteners. Oh, oh, okay. Here, here's the ingredients, but it doesn't tell me the calorie count. Oh. Anyway, gummies and then tablets. These tablets. Nice. Three tablets a day. So surely don't take the gummies and the tablets and the smoothie every day.
0: No, you need to see what your (laughs) recommended daily...
1: (laughs) (laughs) My face. You'll see me in a month. I look like a new woman. Recommended daily Oh, what's this? Oh, I've got effervescent. Oh, crikey.
0: Well, you've got every single one that they do then, don't you? Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Thank you very much, Bioglan. Yeah. I will update you. I'll update you and then we'll... uh... I would also suggest doing the skin... Stuff on your, the serum. Skin. Yeah, I think it's. I do, do think it's good. I'm going to get some more of that. But I your really September can't. When you... Look, 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 look. That's not bad, is it? I think yeah. I've got some elasticity back, some poof back. Given the some fact that I'm getting to a very important birthday at the end of the year.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yes. Right, it's July, so we're month seven of 2021. Let's see how often Kate mentioned her big birthday. So I won't mention it. One. I
0: won't mention it very often because I know you I'm won't. scared about getting to a big
1: birthday. Well, right. I'm going to make a note. July the 1st, <laughs> first mention.
2: of big birthday.
0: That's why I'm on my weight
1: loss. That's why
2: you're on the collagen.
0: I'm on, on the collagen, <laughs> on a weight loss, because I'm determined by this big birthday, which is mentioning no, no numbers. No numbers are mentioned. We're just talking about referring to it as we're just referring to it as a big birthday, but we're not mentioning the number. And I'm determined that, yeah, I'm going to be a stone and a half lighter. And given the Super fact sexy. I've lost 10 pounds in four weeks, come on. That's a very good rate of weight loss. Well done. Mm.
1: Right. Should we get on with um, this podcast chat?
0: Yes, we better had.
1: Let's wait for the man drilling your uh, wardrobe to stop.
0: <laughs> I know. Sorry. It's going to be pretty on and off all day. Well, that's Okay. Welcome to another episode of the Fertility
1: Podcast. I don't know whether or not I've included that the preamble about the collagen and the birthday. Um, if I have, then <laughs> I'm glad that you're still with me. If I didn't, Kate and I were just having a good old chinwag because I've had a load of um, collagen supplements sent to me. And Kate has been using it. And yeah. uh, she's got a big birthday coming. That was what you might have missed. If you, yeah. if you heard it, you know what we're talking about. Kate has a man drilling in her house, if you hear it. I heard it just before.
0: Can you hear it? Can you not hear it now? He's he's drilling again. No, that's all
1: good. We've got a really bumper episode for you. So this is going to be quite a brief intro. What you're going to hear is a conversation that Kate and I had with Claire Ettinghauser from the HFEA and Katie Lindemann, who is a brilliant patient advocate. You might already be following her on social media. And Raj Mather, who is a clinician as well as chair of the British Fertility Society. And you'll hear us talking with Claire and Katie first and then Raj and I've bumped them all together rather than us kind of chatting in between because I just wanted you to kind of get it in the way that Kate and I had the conversations because we had the first the first one uh, with the four of us and then we spoke to Raj kind of back to back and it was a bit full on, wasn't it?
0: But we managed it okay and I think we Raj had a few problems, didn't he? with his tech but other than that we were pretty okay well
1: through the joy of editing i resolved the, the the problems where he was getting louder and quieter so hopefully the audio quality will be okay if it sounds a bit different it's because we had to use zoom but and zoom's not great when we're editing anyway it's something that we're really passionate about helping you to get your head around i think is the best way and you'll hear lots of what we're talking about next but um that's my main point i want to get across from this is that this is a new way to think about things in terms of when you're 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 buying the fertility treatment that you might be buying if you are self funding
0: do you think it's likely to overwhelm people in what they're going to hear? I think it depends how they take the information in because there's a lot of information that we talk about, but it it's backed up by the report and also the cMA video so there's a lots of information that people can go back and look at so. Hopefully, hopefully not. But do you know what? I think it's so important. And we talked, didn't we? And you've just mentioned there about getting your head around the fact that you are no whilst you're a patient, you're also a consumer. And it's really important to, to view IVF treatments in that way. Yeah.
1: So have a listen. And I think what we might do is pick up on this in our Brewer 2 later this week as well. So we're really delighted to have for you a, a kind of panel chat, an impromptu panel chat about what has been released from the CMA the competitions and markets authority is that isn't it so we're going to welcome in some different voices who I felt we felt would be a good way to gauge opinion because this episode was actually going to be on how to choose a clinic and um, we were already just going to speak to the HFEA and we're going to welcome Claire Ettinghauser who's the director of strategy and corporate affairs the podcast welcome Claire thanks for having me And we're also going to be speaking with Raj Mather, who is the chair of the British Fertility Society and a consultant gynecologist at St. Mary's, and also Katie Linderman, who is a patient advocate and founder of the Uber Barons Club. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And it was really just to get your thoughts on where we're at, because this is the first time something like this has been done in, is it 20 years since the sector was reviewed or is it the first time?
3: I thought there was a 20-year number floating around. I think from the HFA perspectives that we were set up 30 years ago now, um, and this is the first time we've been able to work with other bodies who have powers that we don't have. So the Competition and Markets Authority and the Advertising Standards Authority, because the fertility sector has changed so much over the last 30 years. As everyone knows, unfortunately, the, there's very little NHS provision now. So the vast majority of patients are paying for their own treatment. And in some parts of the UK, that's up to 80% of patients are paying for their own treatment. And therefore, the information, the advertising and everything goes with that has changed a lot. Unfortunately, the HFEA's powers haven't changed in 30 years. So we're really happy to be working with those regulators who are specialists in this area, specialists in kind of buying things in consumer law and specialists in advertising law to help strengthen um, the place of patients in this really difficult purchasing decision, probably the most difficult decision that many people are going to have to make in their lives.
1: Before we start to talk about what's actually been explored in, in the guidance, we were wanting to kind of highlight what patients should be considering when choosing a clinic. And in terms of what the HFEA has available from an information point of view, how would you answer that question if people are, you know, just starting out? Because we, we're always saying, look at the HFEA website, and we're still finding people aren't even aware that that is there for them as a resource and so we really want to make it so clear that there is there is a process in in the information available for you and the kind of things that you you want to be looking for.
3: Absolutely thanks I'm really glad to be able to talk about all the information on our website um, as I've worked for the HFEA for now three and a half years and every time I go on the website I find a new piece of information that I didn't know existed so you could uh, sort of go down a rabbit hole there and we know we need to get better, um, particularly before patients even start treatment, at getting them to our website. And you know, thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about it today. Um, so on our website, you'll find lots of different types of information. There's some introductory information before starting treatment about some of the kind of basics, if you like, depending where you're coming from, whether you're in a heterosexual partnership as a single person, thinking of going down the surrogacy route, or perhaps you're even a donor-conceived child looking for more information about your donors, there's lots of different types of information. And there's also some really helpful information about what to do when choosing a clinic and some questions to ask both yourself about what you want from a clinic and clinics before you actually get to the kind of point of um, starting treatment. I suppose the most valuable resource in that is our Choose a Fertility Clinic service, where every single HFEA licensed clinic across the UK is listed there, together with all the information we hold on them. Now, it's not the most um, user-friendly information to decipher. But if peer patients or prospective patients are interested, they can find every single inspection report on the clinic that's ever existed. So every two years, our our inspectors physically go in, at the moment it's virtual, but normally it's physically, they go in and they look at every aspect of both the health and the safety and the support that patients are given by that clinic. So if people really want to drill down, they can find some really interesting and helpful information there. I think it's taking a step back There's a lot of talk about which is the best clinic in terms of success rates. There can only be the best clinic for you, depending on your own personal medical information, your age and other factors involved. So I'd say it's really helpful to look at statistics, especially to make sure, you know, are they in line with the national average? And also, what is the multiple birth rate? Because sadly, multiple births are one of the biggest risks of fertility treatment both to the patient and prospective children born. So look at those success rates, but also look at how convenient is it? Is it somewhere you can access? Because there will be many appointments, though some of those are now virtual. There's many physical appointments. Is it somewhere you can access? If you want to drive, can you park your car there? What emotional support is offered? What access will you have to people with expertise there, whether it's doctors or specialist fertility nurses? Is there eligibility criteria and do you fit into it? what's the waiting time and particular if you if you're using donor eggs or donor sperm is there a particular waiting time that you need to look at. So I'd say all of those things and go to some virtual, they're now virtual at the moment, go to some virtual open days, talk to other people and have a look at what other patients say on our website about the clinics you're interested in.
0: And Claire, I I find the choose a fertility clinic feature on the website really useful and I use that with all my patients and help them to narrow down what would be the, the best clinic for them. Sometimes I think they feel a bit of frustration that uh, success rates sometimes because obviously there's a time lag for if you're getting to that two-year point from when you last went through all the clinics and that can sometimes be a bit frustrating for them but I do find it incredibly useful and would encourage anyone to check it out because it is the mo- one of the most useful facilities and I often say to patients once you've found the right clinic for you you're actually halfway there because you feel so confident and comfortable with your clinic. And that, that means so much. If, if you lose that confidence and comfort in your clinic, then that's not a great place to be. But if you can start off on a really positive note, I think it's so useful.
3: Absolutely. And I think it's really important to recognise that the right clinic for me might may not be the right clinic for someone else. So, you know, we all have different um, things that we consider to be kind of the most important. And um, just because your, you know, your friend or someone you know through an online chat has had success through one clinic, it doesn't have to be, you know, you might may choose to go to another clinic. Just a word on success rates. So, our numbers are always um, about a year and a half to two years, kind of, we've just published to the 2019 data, and I recognise that's very frustrating. Obviously, we have to wait for clinics to report the outcomes of treatment to us, and that naturally takes time. I suppose the other thing to say is, you know, year on year, we generally don't see a massive change sort of a, a quite a small change in percentage. I know that there's so many things that can make people very nervous and perhaps going, well, this is 2019 data. I don't know what's happened recently. Of all the things, um, the probably the numbers haven't changed that much year on year. So you could look at the pattern over the last few years and compare a number of different clinics and see how they've changed. But also look particularly at your age group, because age is still um, the single most important kind of predictor at this stage of how likely treatment is likely to be. So look at kind of make sure you're comparing your own situation. Some clinics sometimes only put numbers of patients that they've treated that are below a certain age group, and therefore, if your age, for example, 38, and you're looking at figures for a 32-year-old, that's not going to be really helpful. So kind of try and put yourself kind of what am I comparing? Is it my situation? And comparing like with like.
0: And that's why it's really useful, I guess, to look at your success rates on the HFEA website rather than necessarily paying too much attention to the clinic's success rates, because, like you say, they may only be presenting that information in a particular way. So it's much better to go to the regulator and get that information, isn't it?
3: Well, certainly we can provide the national figures. Some clinic information is useful because you may fit into kind of a particular category of patients that they treat, maybe based on your past medical experience. But I would say, you know, like any website, it's a shopfront, isn't it? It provides information. I hope that with our guidance and the guidance of the CMA and ASA, that information is accurate, is timely and is checked, and is compared to the information that we hold and verify. But at the same time, what you see on a website shouldn't take away those individual conversations when patients have consultations. If you know, I see this on your website, on the HFEA website, what does that mean for me? We've done a recent report into the experience of black and ethnic minority patients and found that unfortunately for black patients, success rates over the last 10 years have been significantly lower. So again, if you are a black patient or coming from a particular ethnic minority, you really want to talk to your clinical team about, you know, do I need to think of something different? Does ethnicity or will it have an impact on my likelihood of success? So there's a lot to think about there.
0: Yeah, thanks for raising that actually Claire, because we've talked about it on a recent podcast. So if you want to learn more about the um, reproductive health inequalities of black and Asian women, then do please have a listen to our previous episode because it's all in there.
1: Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. And we'll also put links to previous chats we've had with the HFEA in terms of going into more detail about the website. We've also spoken with an HFEA inspector in the past. But just to update everybody, Raj is... Not going to join us for this chat, so we will be talking to Raj after because technology has defied him. So we will get Raj's thoughts on this because I know Katie, you were on a panel, and Claire, I think you were on the panel chat as well that the the Progress Educational yeah. Trust had had in conversation about this, and Katie, you've done a lot of work talking with patients in terms of what they felt they needed for the consultation. It'd be really interesting to get some of the kind of standout
2: concerns that were raised in those conversations that you had. Absolutely. And I think the thing to bear in mind, which is why I think the CMA consultation and the work that they've done, and particularly in collaboration with the Advertising Standards Authority, I think that's so powerful because so much of what we has just been discussed is so important around empowering patients with information. But one of the key challenges that anybody who's had treatment or explored treatment or anything, and you will have heard so many times, is that need to be a detective and having to rotate around and trying to find information and how to determine what do I trust? And absolutely, the HFVA is the gold standard. But it has been the wild west of as much as you know, the HFVA does audit things, there is so much out there that clinics do, or perhaps don't tell you. And it's not just on the choosing a clinic, but so much of what the CMA guidance for clinics is about the entire patient journey. So it's from everything throughout that. And I think the thing to remember is, is that the fertility industry, we don't talk about a cancer. Industry. You know, you can't buy three cycles of chemo and get your price dependent on your prognosis. I have epilepsy. When I go to my neurologist, I don't get a big list of treatments from which to pick and choose. But infertility, we do, and it is an industry. And this is the only area of medicine in this country where we are patients as well as consumers, with the exception of cosmetic surgery, cosmetic dentistry, cosmetic medicine, which are medical procedures to treat aesthetic concerns. Infertility is a disease, we are treating medical concerns. So so much of the consultation and the development of the guidance, so I've been working with them for over a year now, they were really great about wanting to put patients' needs throughout this because ultimately it's guidance that is for clinics and not just for clinics, but to any providers of fertility services. So that includes complementary therapists, fertility coaches, um, nutritionists, anyone providing vitamins or products or so on. It includes clinics from overseas who may be advertising. It includes clinics, social media. It includes all of that activity, anything where clinics or other providers of fertility services are exactly as you say, it's a shop window when they're trying to sell their services and when they're actually Delivering their services throughout. You know, the key thing is around going, what can I trust? How do I make decisions? And so much of this is trying to affect the other end, essentially. It's trying to have enforcement, to have requirements. This is not about new requirements for the law, this is all existing consumer law. What this guidance is, is for clinics and providers of services to be aware of their obligations, their legal obligations under consumer law to make sure that patients are treated fairly when we are choosing and buying and using fertility services. So, so much of this work has been around trying to make it easier for patients by making it standardised and accurate for what the information that they provide to try and make it easier so that we're not having to run around and be detectives and trying to understand, well, okay, what's the difference, you know, that the difference between why are the success rate so different on their website to the HFEA website? And to understand, well, because you're supposed to understand the difference between per embryo transfer and per embryo transferred. Yeah. We shouldn't have to be detectives to be able to understand what these differences are. So being able to have the requirements and making sure that informed choices have to be informed by information. And it is, you know, one of the things that was so valuable And the work that the CMA did and that we did was around going, what is it that patients actually need and specifying this? So in the guidance, it's not just, oh, yeah, well, we've got some information. It's making sure that proper information that genuinely enables us to understand and make informed decisions is provided that is accurate and timely. It's so interesting how the conversation
1: around what we need in this instance feels like it's been really really considered from the patient with what's gone on and reading through the 85 page document the things that were discussed could only have come from patients you could so tell and it was brilliant to see and and it's part of why we do what we do with the podcast and the conversations that Kate and I have in our community, because there's so many questions all the time about this and especially with what's happened with the pandemic. And we've been saying, speak to your clinic, speak to your clinic. And actually last week we just shared an episode which had looked at some research that had been done into the impact of treatment being halted in May to June 2020 and the conversation about the anxieties around it and how the lack of all the failings from clinics at that point because everybody was finding their way and how to communicate and those that did go digital quite quickly and do the meetings on Zoom and the patient advisors or the counsellors on Zoom instant you know much more instantly than others put themselves in, in a better position but that voice from the patient community as we know because we're in this space and we're involved in the Instagram community and what have you is so strong that for it not to be taken into consideration would would obviously Mm. have been an outrage. And knowing that someone like you was at the forefront of collating it, Katie, for me, instills me with confidence.
2: I'll give you one example of that difference. So one of the things they said was pricing. It needs to have transparent pricing. Patients don't think about it in terms of price, what it sells for. We think about cost. What is it actually going to cost us? So, simply saying clinics can say, oh, we have transparent pricing because they have a line by line list. So it's all there, but you have to tot it up. So, it's things of when is a cycle, not a cycle. Sometimes they include, you know, they'll say all inclusive package, but it doesn't include blood tests, it doesn't include medications, it doesn't include this. And different ones would include different things. And so, actually, you know, some of the exercises that I did with them was to show, you know, here's various different clinic websites, they'll say, you know transparent pricing, but actually, when you look at what the headline cost is, and what a basic, no frills, no add-ons cycle is based on those price lists, you could end up with a headline price of four thousand pounds or five thousand pounds per male factor. But actually, just taking into account blood tests and you know all of the kind of medications, the kind of things that are not add-ons but are core to a cycle, they are core, but they are not necessarily included. So, that is the difference. Simply saying clinics have to provide transparent pricing, well, they can say that they are doing, but to say that actually from patients, that patients should understand what the cost is, that's a real difference between thinking about it from the clinic side or the provider side and thinking about it from the patient side.
0: Well, thank goodness for your involvement because you need definitely that patient voice. And obviously, you've been involved from a patient advocacy point of view. Claire, I'm kind of intrigued. How, what's, your, what's the HFEA's involvement been with the CMA? How, how much have you been involved in the process? And obviously, how much will you continue to be involved in the process? And also, double question here, is I'm also really intrigued to see whether you've received any feedback from clinics yet. Have, you, have they voiced any concerns? Are there any big barriers and obstacles that they need to overcome? What's kind of your feelings on all of those?
3: So, both the is sort of in a, in a weird kind of happening. Both the CMA and ASA approached us now, nearly two years ago actually, separately, although they had both worked together as regulators about concerns that it had found with compliance with their own, as Katie said, the consumer law that already existed and with the advertising standard codes that already existed. We brought everyone together, and at that point, we had already started talking about how the HFEA Act, the act that set us up, is already 30 years old and as you know with our work in treatment add-ons and in other areas our powers are very limited essentially to kind of almost health and safety and as Katie says this is such a unique frustratingly annoyingly it shouldn't be unique but it is a unique area of healthcare where people are making buying and purchasing decisions every day because of the inadequacy of NHS funding and then the kind of postcode lottery that comes with that. So we were really happy that um, this had been picked up by other the regulators in areas where they could act and have powers on and that we haven't got powers. Um, I mean any change to our uh, powers or our legislation, you know, we hope will come, but is likely to take many years. So in the meantime, this is a great was a great opportunity for us. So we worked fairly closely with them, although bearing in mind this is their kind of legislation, not ours. So we provided some background information for example on you know what happens in a clinic. And as Katie said, it's not only what happens in HFEA licensed clinics but in all those other providers, including potentially overseas clinics, which we have no powers on. We helped the CMA at first. They did quite a lot of engagement. So whether it was with individuals or advocates, people like Katie, or with more formal groups like Fertility Network. And right at the start of their work, in fact, it was just the last events before um, the pandemic hit in March 2020, they did a couple of initial roundtables with our stakeholder groups. So we have a professional stakeholder group with people like the British Fertility Society and the counsellors and nurse representatives and we also have a patient stakeholder group which has got various patient groups on it and we kind of um, held two events with them where they could at least start those conversations. Then the pandemic hit and the work was obviously delayed by a few months because given what was happening with fertility clinics and you know we're really proud that it was it was and still is the first health sector to reopen and stayed open throughout the pandemic and treatment numbers are back to where they were. I know that doesn't take away kind of the concern and stress from people in 2020 but unlike other sectors, it has got back to kind of quite a good point compared to where we were last year. So in the autumn of 2020, the CMA held, uh, I can't remember what they called them, but discussion groups with clinics. They spoke to almost, I think, every clinic or representative from any every HFEA licensed clinic in the country. They also had a series of meetings with people like the British Fertility Society, with nurses, with counsellors, and individually clinics or with some of the larger groups of clinics spoke directly to the Competition Markets Authority, as did many patients and patient groups. We weren't part to lots of those discussions we were only kind of part of the sort of bigger open events if that makes sense but we worked hard hopefully successfully to help them to understand things from a regulatory for a perspective from where we sit and I think in terms of what happens next that you touched upon at the end it's important for us both for our inspectors who have got a lot of things that they um, need to inspect, but also for others to realise that our law is very, uh, I mean, it sounds so so kind of boring, but it's really strict. So we can inspect kind of within a certain kind of box of things. We can't inspect against things that aren't our law. So an, an example I always use is we can't say whether a clinic is safe from a like fire perspective. But if we go into a clinic and there aren't any kind of fire hoses and all the fire doors are broken and the fire alarm doesn't work, we would make a recommendation saying, you know, you now need to sort this out because we can see you're not compliant with health and safety law or fire law. So in this sense, we're not going to be inspecting directly against consumer law or the advertising codes. However, it is our inspectors who are in and out of clinics every day rather than other regulators. So we are working with them on kind of where our powers finish and their start, what happens, which frequently does happen when we receive either complaints directly to us or whistleblowing from members of staff, or actually often very frequently, clinics complaining about other clinics, particularly in terms of what's on their website and advertising, what we do with those um, concerns and how the CMA and the ASA may use their concerns when they look at whether clinics and others are compliant with their recommendations.
0: So in relation then to kind of the guidance coming out, what feedback have you have you
3: had from clinics and what are
0: their concerns, if any?
3: So in relation to it coming out a few weeks ago, we haven't received any specific concerns as far as I know to date. It has been a while in the making. So as I said, last March, just before the pandemic hit in March 2020, or the kind of lockdowns happened, was when the sector, I guess, was first made aware that this work was going to be happening. I mean, I think at at the time, I don't, it's really not my job to speak on behalf of clinics. We've always said that this is something we welcome and this will be good for patients. I think that there's, some concern from clinics you know what does this mean for our information um some people said you know i like to talk to patients you know virtually or in you know in the consulting room do i have to now send everything by email or when do i need to send it what information do i need to provide and also I suppose, to be fair, some some people are concerned that there's a doctor-patient relationship and this makes it one of a consumer. Again, I think this is something Katie and I both spoke about when we talked to the Progress Educational Trust event. You know, that might be sad to see, but, you know, that's the reality. We can't get away from that. And, you know, any other purchase I make, you know, I go onto whatever website and I compare mobile phone offers and I can see everything. You know, I need to be able to do that for fertility treatment as well. I need all the information as Katie said what is it actually going I don't care what the price said what's it going to cost me and then I can compare what I'm being offered and is it the right decision for me so I think as much as I do obviously I'm not a doctor and I really respect the patient doctor or the clinical team and the patient relationship and that's absolutely important and that doesn't get in the way of medical advice people are spending you know we normally say people are spending thousands but you and I know of people who spend, you know, 20,000, 30,000, on a single cycle of treatment. This is often for people, you know, a, the biggest medical expense they're ever going to have and the most, certainly the most emotional expense. You know, getting the right information, if that makes you a consumer, I think, you know, we can all live with that personally and we were just talking before
1: we hit record about the kind of patient facing part of this guidance because we've been discussing what is an 85 page document there was a document that has been shared for the patient because we know patients who are going down the fertility treatment route they like their information they like the papers but we've also shared a video that was created to highlight what this guidance showed and Kate and I have been talking about how we, we we thought it might have had more views. We're sharing it within our socials. We had a conversation on our Instagram the other week asking people if they were aware of this guidance, which was a little bit of a tumbleweed moment. Obviously, it's down to the community to be talking about it. And, you know, I'm sure there will be articles in the press at various stages. But, Katie, how do you feel the patient is going to take on? this information and benefit from it and what's the best way for us to obviously we're waiting for the clinics to do what they do and you know make it easier for us to see but meanwhile how do you think we as patients are
2: kind of reacting to this I mean I think that is you've hit the nail on the head there because I think this is this is about others doing stuff to make sure that it is You know, they're meeting the requirements and actually joining the links between the consumer law and what the HFEA do. So, I think, yes, there's, you know, what do we do? But I think a lot of it is about making stuff so that we don't have to, not do less, but so that we have expectations that are minimum expectations. So, for example, in the HFEA code of practice, you know, this is a requirement that clinics must provide sufficient, accessible, and up to date information to enable patients to make informed decisions. And it is in the HFE, you know, the law that says that that you cannot start treatment until the patient has been provided with such relevant information as is proper. The problem with this, and again, you know, the law around informed consent, is that it has to be defined, you know, who defines what is proper? And the problem is, is that so much of this has been down to the patient to have to keep asking and saying and chasing around and having to do that work. And actually, so one of the things that was really important, and I guess, you know, part of the consultation once was that this was very industry facing. And what they wanted, you know, they wanted to hear from patients. And they, you know, they went out and they did research. But, you know, it's quite wieldy, it is industry facing. So one of the things that I worked with them on was around going, how can we set up surveys and things to kind of, what are the most important things that they want to know? And what are the most important ways to make it digestible? And really crucially, it's about going, what does Such relevant information as is proper mean. Because without having kind of, you know, spelling out what the regulator thinks constitutes meeting those obligations, it's very easy for clinics or other things to say, well, you know. Who says what's proper? And again, I totally take on board the fact that ultimately the most valuable stuff is between the doctor and the patient. There is nothing in terms of information that is provided that can supersede that, and nothing that the most valuable thing is the things that are right for you. However, We also know as patients that the time that we get with our clinicians is so limited and we have so much information, so many things we want to know. And these are, as you said, these are such important decisions that very often we don't have the place to go that is both reliable and useful and that we can trust. Because if clinics are sort of leaving us on our own to go and find out information, it's really stressful, it's really difficult and ultimately finding such relevant information as is proper, we can find stuff that isn't necessarily helpful, isn't necessarily true, isn't necessarily reliable. So really, I think so much of this is about putting putting the owners back on the clinics and the providers. So I think for us, it's about being empowered to feel that we are entitled to this information, that we are not being annoying or demanding in asking for this that when we are having treatment we should be in you know we should be able to access in addition to our conversation written information whether that's a leaflet or whether that's something on a patient portal or something you know it's not necessary I know clinics said oh you know we don't want to overwhelm there's a difference between feeling that they have to bombard us between and us wanting to be able to find answers to our questions and not having to hunt around the internet To find answers to questions that our clinics should be providing us, in order to fulfil that legal requirement, that treatment should not start until the patient has been provided with the right information to make that informed decision.
1: I mean, in all honesty, if it happens as it should, Kate, you won't have any patients. We won't have any content to make for the podcast because all the
3: answers that people need (laughs) they'll get from the clinics. So you know, we have to be careful what we (laughs) wish for. Absolutely. I just want to add something to something that uh, Katie's just said. Pre-pandemic, I would sometimes have the kind of pleasure and privilege, I guess, to go to clinics as a visitor. I'm not an inspector and I'm specifically not on the inspection side of the HFEA. There's nothing like going to the actual place where treatment takes place to kind of see what's happening and see the impact of things like our code of practice. And sometimes I was fortunate enough to sit on patient consultations, obviously with patient's permission. And I remember one particular consultant welcoming back a couple who were in very difficult circumstances. And he'd, in fact, given this couple some information about two weeks before and said to them, I don't you know, I don't want to talk to you about any of the detail now. I'm going to give you, a, you know, basically a pile of information and come back in a couple of weeks' time. And that was the first time that I'd heard him say that to all the patients he saw that day. And they had said, actually, you gave us the best advice because we walked out of the clinic going, why isn't he just telling us everything today? Why is he sending us Away for two weeks, you know what, and actually, when they came back, they said, You know, that was the best advice because you know, gave us so much information, we would never have been able to answer all our questions. Now, that may not be the case in every consultation, but what it would say is on our website, where you, there's lots of things you can have on your phone or print out about questions to ask your clinic, as Katie says, sometimes you can feel rushed and sometimes it is hard to think of all the questions. You know, don't hesitate to go back, whether it's to ask for another virtual consultation, to send an email in which case you can get everything in writing and you can refer back to it to ask to speak to a specialist fertility nurse who might really you know be able to get to the in depth part of your questions and if you have a question about money it's a hard thing in the UK in healthcare to start talking about money in relation to health purchases but if you have a question, and you're not getting answers, go back and back again. And I know that Katie is an advocate on behalf of many patients. Unfortunately, often patients have to be their own advocates. But the information is your right to have. And if you feel that you haven't got it in that, you know, precious time of consultation where you might be talking about, you know, some really specific parts of your healthcare, then you know, go back again and again until you get the answers. And if you're not getting it from that clinic, then perhaps ask yourself why and is there something wrong with the service that you're not getting the answers you need. Yeah, it is your legal
2: right. It is not a nice to have. Absolutely 100% right and the point is is that some clinics are brilliant at this, some are less so. You know, and absolutely we have to be our own advocates. It's about feeling empowered to say I should be able to expect not just a quality of service but it is my legal right to be able to get this information and it is my it is a legal requirement. You know, it's so difficult in that kind of doctor-patient and the clinical relationship. It can be it's really daunting and there is a power imbalance. But the fact is we are entitled to it and you're not being bothersome if you're asking questions. It is absolutely incumbent on them to be able to answer and I couldn't agree more with Claire about part of finding that is right for the clinic is that you're you know that they Mm -hmm. should be able to and they should willingly you might have to keep badgering but that is that is their responsibility
1: And I'm going to add in the show notes a link to a previous chat, Katie, we had with you that was called The Notebook of Doom, (laughs) highlighting, as Katie um, has explained there, about, you know, you have your information with you. We are going to have to leave it there because we're going to go and catch up with Raj. Kate, were you wanting to say something?
0: Only that I completely agree with you, Katie, about, you know, becoming your own advocate and feeling empowered. But it is so difficult for, for some women, not all. Some can be feeling you know, very strong and empowered at that moment and can actually ask all the questions. But for others, it might be so, so hard to do that when you're sitting in front of a doctor who in their eyes is holding actually the key to their future and also in their eyes is incredibly knowledgeable and you don't want to disagree with your doctor when you're sat in front of them. And that's really hard. And it's difficult to actually educate women and empower women to get over that in many ways.
1: Well, thank you, everybody for your thoughts in quite a concise way there. We're going to go and grab Raj quickly. He's given us a 15-minute window. So we've just had a chat with Katie and Claire about the HFEA's involvement with the CMA guidance and Katie's involvement in the consultation phase in terms of being like a patient advocate. We're really keen to get your thoughts on it as the chair of the BFS and also as a clinician. Obviously, you're working in the NHS, but I'm curious as to the conversations that you might have had with your peers. So I know you're short of time. So do you want to just tell us how you feel about the fact that this guidance has been produced?
4: uh, The first thing to say is that actually on a personal level and a professional level, I actually welcome that there is this guidance because what it is doing is it's making It's easier for clinics to meet responsibilities, legal responsibilities that they've always had, but which there has never been any clear guidance to clinics on how to meet those. So it's not producing any new obligations on clinics, but hopefully it will allow clinics to meet those responsibilities better uh, to their patients. So I I also think that the CMA have uh, consulted widely. Uh, Certainly they've consulted the British Fertility Society. They've had meetings with different parts of the Utility sector, as far as I can tell. So I think there has been a reasonable consultation and patients have also fed into it. I think a lot will depend on how the guidance is policed and implemented. Whilst I think overall it's, it's a really good thing, but there are some elements to it which seem to me slightly complicated, and I'm not sure quite how it will work in practice. So uh, the CMA is uh, you know, into three stages where you have to provide information. And it seems to me that particularly the type and the extent of information they want in the first stage is, I think, in practice, that is just too much information. For instance, it says that when the patient approaches you, is doing their preliminary research, you, then you need to tell them all about add-ons and the evidence or lack of evidence for add-ons, and the risks of add-ons, I, I think that is just excessive. And I think that is just not how clinical medicine works. You don't go into it talking about absolutely every risk, everything from the word go. Uh, and I think that is a misunderstanding of how a clinical encounter works. The second thing is that you do need to leave it to the discretion of the physician in how and at what stage they introduce certain elements of, of clinical discussion. We shouldn't take away completely the doctor's discretion in when the doctor wants to discuss certain risks and elements of, of a patient's treatment. Because in my experience, it, is, it isn't you, always a good idea to say everything upfront at the start when the patient is still researching which clinic to go to, or even researching whether to have fertility.
0: You think, Raj, that would be too much information in one go and the, the, the risk of the patient being overloaded with information at that point?
4: I think, I think a lot of these steps do risk that. And I've made that point repeatedly. Uh, and I think a lot of the focus and a lot of the debate misses the fact that when it comes to actual fertility treatment or any medical treatment in practice, there is a kind of relationship that exists between the doctor yes. or the, the caregiver and the patient, and that relationship has to be one of trust, and the patient has to know and believe that you're on her side, and will do what it takes to help her achieve her aim. And I think that is the fundamental relationship, and I think if we instrumentalize a lot of this, and if we put a lot of structures around it, I think we do actually erode the central relationship which we don't talk about enough because actually that is the most critical thing for patients i guess
0: there's a risk of it actually although we we want patients to have all the right information it almost becomes a bit of a tick box exercise isn't it
4: definitely definitely and i think if there is a lot of prescription on when you do this and when you do that and in what form you do this what are the information you need to give and what exact words you need to use then i'm afraid it will become a tick box exercise And I think that 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 can have implications, unintended implications, for the care that patients get.
1: So we had an example just given from Claire Ettinghauser from the HFAA about a clinic that she had been at, not in an official capacity at all, but there had been kind of a whole load of information given to patients with them to come back in two weeks with any questions. As an example, from the conversations that we have in our communities patients are so hungry for information that they're asking each other and they're asking us so i totally hear what you're saying yet i still feel as a former patient that there is this real hunger to get a real idea of what this thing is ahead of you and almost then you can pick and i know totally about the overwhelm we talk about it all the time it's the reason that we make the podcast yet there's also the argument is why can't we just have all the information So I suppose there's a fine line of what's the right information at what time, isn't there? That's what they're trying to map out.
4: It's the right information, the right time. And also, Natalie, if I may say, there are times when you need to actually listen to a podcast and actually listen to your peers. And there are times when you need to talk to your doctor. And those two times aren't exactly the same. Do you see what I mean? So the responsibility on the clinic to give all that information. I'm not saying that, you know, that we make it a responsibility or podcast, although I think you'll do the job extremely well. But you know, there are times when different modes of, and different sources of information, what we need to do is ensure that there is good quality, reliable information out there, and that it is available in a diversity of formats, and that patients are able to access it. And I think making it essential or a contractual obligation to provide all the information all the time to all the patients, I'm kind of exaggerating here, but you, you get the point. I think making it a contractual obligation risks undermining the kind of softer aspects of care which are very important aspects of I'm care.
1: aware that we don't have much longer with you Raj I just wanted to ask quickly about the kind of feedback that you might have had from colleagues in light of this guidance that clinics are now looking at how they're going to implement
4: so we've discussed this in our executive committee and we we support the introduction of these guidelines in in principle there's no no doubt about it several members of our executive committee participated in a session with the CMA which um, when they were developing this. So after that, I haven't had any direct feedback yet, but it's very, very early days. I do know, and clinics have told me, that they've put in place quite a lot of changes to their paperwork, their contract, etc. And I think some of the clinics also need to look at training the staff because it isn't necessarily the medical staff. It might be the administrative staff even who liaise with patients, talking to them about terms and conditions and so on. So I think there's a lot in the guidance, which is not just to do with how clinicians conduct themselves but with, with the kind of commercial relationship. And I think the clinic as an organisation has to take steps to make sure it's meeting its legal obligations.
1: Thank you, Raj. I'm aware you need to go. So I do appreciate you giving us your thoughts on this and we'll, we'll be talking more about it, no doubt, in the future.
4: Thank you very much. Pleasure.
1: Just tell me what you thought. Tell me
0: what you thought of the chat with Katie and Claire. I think I just, my biggest frustration is I just wish the HFEA had... Legal jurisdiction to be able to police the clinics more. I really, really do. And I just find it extraordinary that that isn't already there. But then as, as Claire said, maybe, you know, her legislation around that is 30 years old and maybe that will change in time, but it will take a long time to change and it, it will be too late for many people currently. I think talking to Katie, oh my God, has she so hit the nail on the head with regards to the patient experience? And thank God for her, because as you said, in that CMA report, the thread of the patient experience goes all the way through it from beginning to end. So aren't we lucky? Aren't we lucky that somebody as knowledgeable and experienced who's gone through all those pitfalls and has and luckily has the ability to advocate for herself, aren't we lucky that she was there yeah. involved in that? Katie is an an, an inspirational character in, yeah, in the time is. that
1: she I mean, she's been She's been having conversations with patients anyway because she's been kind of compiling her book for the last couple of years and it would have just been an obvious thing for her to to get more involved. But as she was saying, she was kind of coming up with survey ideas and the way to extract that information because there's so many things that were unclear and people were and are unsure of but when you look through the different kind of nuances of language and she said about embryo transfer or transferred it's Mm. so subtle Mm. that you like I Mm. know how I read things I skim read and especially when there's Mm. big chunks of text that are important it's like my brain goes into overdrive so knowing that that has been thought through what is really interesting is that the next phase is how this is implemented and that's why it was really interesting to talk to Raj and when Claire had talked about there being a a whole load of information being well received by the patients that she encountered, Raj made a totally valid point from his point of view.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting because the CMA guidelines, it says to give patient the information that they require in an accurate format and in a timely manner. Now, I know Katie was saying, actually, that she feels that all that information should be given up front right at the beginning. And I agree with her to a certain extent. And then when we speak to, to Raj, I'm I'm completely agreeing with him too in, in the fact that it can be overwhelming, that can be too much information. And why would you want to talk about IVF add-ons with a patient who's just at the very beginning of starting the process and then is having to think about IVF add-ons way before they even should? Is that right? Is that fair to do to do that? I don't. I don't know the answer, but I agree. I. Oh, do you know, it's, it's so difficult, isn't it? Because I find myself agreeing with what Katie was saying, and then I found myself really understanding it from a clinician's point of view when Raj was talking about and about the patient relationship with the clinician and how you would lose some of that, and there is that danger of it becoming a tick box task, and therefore you've lost the intricacies of that patient conversation at the right time. Do you know what? I don't know what the answer is. It's massive.
1: It feels like this kind of analogy of when you're trying to get comfy on the couch next to somebody and you're like, you're, you're kind of wrestling your arms next to each other because we know that treatment isn't one size fits all and nor is that Exchange of information, one size fits all. But what I think is clear is that the information should be written correctly or should be presented correctly. How much is given at what stage? I, I appreciate that needs to be tailored to the patient. If you've got somebody coming coming to a clinic having had failed cycles elsewhere, they know what they want to know. However, if you've got somebody walking through a clinic for the first time, they're going to be totally overwhelmed by every single thing that's thrown at them, which is my experience. Rabbit in the headlights, totally just said yes to everything that I was given, signed everything I was given, didn't really know what I was looking for. So what would be really interesting is hearing your thoughts from this episode. We really, really would love to know if you want us to do more on this, because we can, you know, we can keep asking the questions and, but we're very aware that this is a very specific conversation for you heading into treatment, which is why we're actually sharing it at this point in the conversation we've been having on the Fertility Podcast since we relaunched it in February. We're now at this point where We're talking about what happens when you have to have treatment. And a big part of what happens when you have treatment is you have to be treated fairly. You have to have access to information. You have to feel emotionally supported. It's not just about the medical procedures that are happening. We're very determined to make sure that you've got the whole picture of this, which is why we wanted to share this conversation in light of this new guidance. So it would be really interesting. We'll put the links to the paper and to the video in the show notes. And it will be really, really, really interesting whether you get in touch with us on social media, whether you email info at thefertilitypodcast.com or tell us in our closed Facebook group, The Fertility Podcast, what you think of this. Is this on your radar? The fact that this guidance has been created and that it is going to mean something pretty significant for you in terms of the information that you have access to.
0: So we'd love to know because that's the point of us making this episode. It is. And I think it goes back to what Katie was saying about, you know, becoming your own fertility advocate, and you know, Natalie, how passionate I'm about that and how I really try to empower women. And this is all about you becoming empowered and actually feeling that you can have the ability to sit there in front of your doctor and ask these difficult questions and get the information you want. And I just want to reiterate what you said, Natalie, about, you know, if you want to hear more, please, please tell us, because we're lucky on this podcast, we get the best top experts. I mean, we have got three key people here today talking to us about this really, really important piece of information. We get the experts. So if you want more, we'll do more. Just tell us. With that in
1: mind, whilst you're thinking about what you think of this episode, feel free to leave us a review on a lighter note. You could leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. just going, do you know what? This was exactly... No, I'm not going to tell you what to say. But to leave us a review, and ideally with five stars, would be lovely. And as always, do follow us on our socials. Actually, before we give you our socials, let's have a little bit from Dr. James Nekapoulis, because as well as the brilliant people we have on our show today, we also have our resident expert. Here he is. Ask the expert. 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 Okay, this is a bit of a curious question. It's kind of about how clinics work out which IVF protocol to use and the dosages for the IVF stims, because what they're saying is that they've experienced some consultants using antifolical counts and others using the AMH
5: blood test. Yeah, I think those two are the best markers for assessing egg reserve. And I think most people will probably use both because usually they, they correlate. Usually if you've got a good AMH, you've got a good antifolical count. Every now and again, you don't. And then I'm probably, I probably are on the side of the AMH a little bit more because it's less user-dependent, less scan machine-dependent, but the data suggests they're very similar. But thereafter, once you've got uh, a steer or an egg reserve, you know, there's lots and lots of talk about protocols. If you do really, really well, the doctor will say how clever he is. If we do, you do badly, somehow it will be the ovaries' fault. The, the truth is somewhere in the middle. In that if you look at the, the big data, the big studies, there's no great evidence to suggest one protocol is better than the other. There's no great evidence to suggest that one type of injectable FSH is better than the other, despite what your own company might say to you. That doesn't mean that individual patients may not benefit from one from the other, but you know the data suggests a lot of this is very, very similar. So then often it becomes a choice of, of safety. So if somebody's got a very, very good egg reserve, we want to make sure you minimize hyperstimulation risk. So then you should use an antagonist or a short protocol. Because it gives us some clever tools in our arm, we can minimize hyperstimulation. If somebody's got a more standard uh, egg reserve, then a long protocol, again, works equally well. It does then depend a lot on clinic, clinic choice, clinician choice in terms of what they prefer, what they have more experience with. And in terms of the drugs themselves, some clinics contractually work with only one drug company. Some clinics work with lots of drug companies and can, can choose all sorts of drugs. And it often then becomes that, that the factors then become ease of use because some drugs have got nice pretty pens um, and it's easier to use with an automated pen than it is with drawing up injections. So a lot of it becomes the variables about clinic choice, permission choice, the way it's given, cost of the drug as well in the private sector. Uh, because if, if two drugs are equally, work equally well, you want to make sure you know, your patient is using the cheaper of the two as well. So there's lots of factors that come into it as well as the evidence.
1: So for people who are asking questions in Facebook groups like we have in the yeah. Facility Podcast Facebook group, which is where this question's come about. This is the downside of it, isn't it? Because everybody's sharing their individual protocols and it's all down to the variables that you've just said. So it's worth bearing in mind, or do you think it's fair to say, trust your clinic's judgment?
5: Yeah, more often than not, it doesn't mean you can't ask sensible questions and say, look, this is what I've heard. You know, my favourite sentence that starts with my friend had, or I read this. But, you know, it's very reasonable. You you, you need to leave my consulting room reassured. Uh, And if that means asking questions, you've got to do it. And it's also worth bearing in mind that you could do the same thing on the same woman with the same drugs, with the same ovaries, two months apart and get a completely different response, Uh, just because the number of follicles that have been recruited or or various other reasons. So you're always going to have that variability as well. And it makes it sound like we pick things out of a hat. We don't. But, you know, we try and do as much as we can with an evidence base. And sometimes the evidence doesn't suggest one one thing is better than the other.
1: Ask the expert, ask the expert, ask the expert, ask the expert, ask the expert. So you can ask questions to him. I mean, the ideal is you're asking them to your clinician that you're seeing at your clinic, but we know that doesn't always happen, which is why James does the brilliant job he does. You can ask more questions on all the ways that we have suggested. If you're not following us on our socials, I'm at Fertility Puddy. And I'm at Your
0: Fertility Journey.
1: Thank you, as always, for your support. And until the next time,
3: Crowd Network.
0: A place where you belong.